Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Ness Dorma, your weekly conversation about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee Calvert, uh, sort of your host, as we all here gently perambulate through the greatest period in football history. Thank you very much for listening to us, whether that be on Acast, Apple Podcasts or on your favourite pod player. And thanks for those that have left us some five-star reviews and thanks for those that have subscribed. Please, if you are listening, subscribe and you can have us ready for you every single week. You can find the pod on Twitter at Pod. We have a web- website, nessundormapod.com. There's a mailing list there as well. You can get in touch with us via email should you wish to have a very long conversation with us at contact at nessundormapod.com. Joining me this week is journalist and author of Roar of the Lionesses, among many other books. It's Carrie Dunn. Hello, Carrie. Hello. And also here is author of When Football Came Home, about Euro 96, uh, who's been with us with it on an episode before as well, Mike Gibbons. Hi, Mike. Hi, Lee. How you doing? Well, not too bad. Better after this conversation, I'll bet. Coming up in this episode, we'll be talking about players from the 80s and 90s that we, would, we reckon would do well these days on the, in the new systems and things like that. Also, Carrie will be helping us to fathom the full magnificence of Luton Town's 1988 season. And maybe some of the not-so-magnificence that came afterwards, Carrie. Yeah, I think that's probably about right, yes. So <laughs> glorious 87-88 in a hideous kind of decade after that, yeah. And then we'll also have a look at back at 1997's Le Tournoir, or was it was it Tournoir de France to give it its full uh, title, Mike? Was that right? Uh, yeah, it kind of went under both. Tournoir de France was the official uh, title, and uh, I think they called it Le Tournoir, so um, to stop Paul Gascoigne calling it the Tour de France. so let's kick off then by talking about players that would do well these days from from the 80s obviously there were some great players in the 80s and 90s that would do well in any period but it's more about thinking about players that when you look at the systems that people play that the teams play these days 
maybe players that did all right then but would do even better now. And also I've got a few comments about players that maybe wouldn't do so well now either. Uh, shall I start? I'll start. Okay. A good one for me, and again, this is one of the ones he did all right back then, but imagine him playing now, is John McGovern from Nottingham Forest. So yeah. imagine him playing now in these kind of deep-lying midfield pairings where he wouldn't have to do much tackling, and he'd just do that thing that he does. He'd be like, well, he'd be like Pirlo, but obviously a lot less glamorous. <laughs> but he didn't do much running. He didn't do much tackling. He'd just basically quietly run the game with four-meter passes. That would be kind of John McGovern. Well, that was John McGovern then. It would be John McGovern now with that slightly hunchback run that he did. Uh, a very in vogue now, isn't it? I think a lot of people notice that a lot more. What with the... Uh... You know, Pirlo and other McAuley, the McAuley role and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think he'd be, a, he'd be a lot more over the radar than he was then, I'm sure. Yeah, because, I mean, he couldn't even get in the Scotland squad back then. Not consistently, anyway. Yeah, I suppose that was quite a difficult squad to get into, I guess. But, yeah, even uh, even so, you'd think, was he a double European Cup winner? Was he in both of those teams? He was, and the Nottingham Forest yeah. team get a bit... They, they get... Well, he was captain as well, wasn't he? And they get they get very upset because they don't feel that any of the players in that team... I don't think any of them are in the European Hall of Fame, for example. Well, even, not at all. Well. Even though they were... People, especially people like John, um, John Robertson on the wing. It's incredible, really. Likewise, another player didn't move much in midfield. Ray Wilkins will probably do all right now. What about you then, Mike? What have you got in terms of a player that would do better now or as well now? Or? Uh, well, I'm not going to go far... From that Forest team, actually. I was going to go for Viv Anderson. All right, yeah. Who's uh, kind of prototype of the modern fullback, really. I mean, that, you know, the fabled getting up and down, like, you know, Kyle Walker and Seamus Coleman. But uh, I think back then he was kind of ahead of his time. And, you know, he was signed by Clough. Ferguson signed him later on. He played for Arsenal as well. He was in both those European Cup winning teams. Had a brilliant club career, but was just kind of wasted by England, really. I mean, they took him to four tournaments. So two European Championships and two World Cups. And they only played him at the first European Championship in 1980. And they played him in a dead rubber against Spain when England you know, couldn't mm. qualify. But all those other tournaments, he just sat on the bench while you know, Gary Stevens or Mick Mills, you know, both good players, but played instead of him. And you have to win it. I think he would do very well now, Viv Anderson. I mean, there's such an accent on the modern game, isn't there? In, on, sorry, uh, you know, full-backs getting yeah. full. You know, Kyle Walker, Seamus Coleman, as I've mentioned, Danny Alves. Um, and aside from being a really good defender, he's brilliant going forward as well. Could just kind of chew up the ground when he ran. Yeah, that, that's kind of perfect for the modern game, I think. Because I think a lot of fullbacks now, you can kind of see that they're converted wingers in a way. Like mm. They couldn't cut the wings, so they got pushed back to fullback. That's literally true in Antonio Valencia's case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think he's just been pushed back to right back. But yeah, I think now. Yeah, Viv Anderson would do really well in the modern game, I think. Ironically, the thing about wingers being converted to fullbacks and doing well now, people who probably wouldn't do so well now are actually wingers. Do wingers still exist anymore? Yeah, there's a kind of... I mean, that idea of being kind of nailed out to the wing and just receiving the ball and then just kind of trotting up to beat the fullback, that's a, a very kind of archaic... Uh, well, if you think about wait. Blackbird in 95, it was Jason Wilcox and Stuart Ripley. They probably wouldn't get anywhere near a top... Prim uh, a league-winning team these days, that kind of player. Yeah, well, let alone, I mean, both of them got capped by England, I think. It was, um, yeah, well, yeah, foot, yeah, football very much used to be like that, didn't it? What, two wingers, you know, you had your two hard-working central midfielders, and, you know, maybe one tall striker and a smaller guy bouncing around him, and that was, your, you know, part of your basic 4-4-2. Was, um, 
Going back to Viv Anderson, was he still at Arsenal in 88 when Luton played them in the final, Carrie, can you remember? No, he wasn't. He'd no. gone to United by then, had he? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so that's some players that we... Have you got some that you think would do well now, Carrie? Well, it was going to kind of lead into the, to the Luton thing. Okay. I've been on an 87-88 kick. I was going to say Ricky <laughs> Hill, to be honest. Right. Um, yeah, going back to the kind of idea of uh, midfielders who can completely control the game, not necessarily running their legs off, but completely wasted by England. He obviously did fantastically well at club level. But, um, yeah, got a handful of caps, and that was about it. But, yeah, Ricky Hill. Yeah, there's a number of players like that when you look back. There was kind of like... I think the thing with Anderson is that even though he didn't, he was woefully underused by England. He wasn't underrated generally. I think people mm. look back on Anderson as a very good player, but people like Ricky Hill, who was also woefully underused by England, you could argue. I think he's kind of if he says a lot of people now, do you remember Ricky Hill? With all due respect, Harry would say, yeah, "I'm no, not sure if I do." Yeah. You know, it's kind of yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean <laughs> that kind of comes back to the the, the whole kind of. Uh, Luton being flying under the radar quite a lot kind of thing as well. But, yeah, I mean, Ricky Hill's career makes me a little bit sad. Obviously, he came back to coach for a little while mm. uh, at the turn of the millennium and uh, has has basically left English coaching again. So, yeah, sad. Yeah, according to what I can read here, he's, his last coaching job was with the Tampa Bay Rowdies up to 2014. Yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, he was at, at Luton for about... Uh, Two months as manager, and it did not go well. What happened? Was it two months of not winning? Was that what the problem was? Or Pretty much, yeah, but then it's not any different to a lot of other people. I was going to say, yeah, what marked him out from anybody else, yeah. They speak, and I, I speak to someone who has a, a team who's had a rough time for 20 years. I'm not trying to pick on you, so that's just the way it is. Yeah, so so Ricky Hill, what what, what about you guys out there listening? Have you got anybody you think who um, would do well now when you look at teams? Nigel Clough was another one, I think. I'm not going to talk about it too much now, but he's a... I mean, again, did okay back then, went to Liverpool. But again, imagine him in the middle of a of a three behind a lone striker. I think Nigel Clough would be absolutely incredible. A lot of people at Nottingham Forest, it seems. It's like I'm on a kind of forest run. I'm not. It's just, it just seems like... I suppose maybe it's saying a lot about the fact that Clough tended to have ball players, I suppose. And it's a ball player's game now, you could say. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Right then, so let's have a conversation about Luton 1987-1988. Now, before you start, Gary, I must say I've got some affinity with all of this because as an Oldham Athletic fan, which I always have to mention every week contractually, uh, I do feel a little bit of empathy here because around about that time, plastic pitch, yeah. um, you know, um, unfashionable club, quirky ground. Isn't it right yeah. that Kenilworth World, my memory of Kenilworth Road, is it still the same? Is all those corporate boxes down one side of the pitch yes. on one tier? Yes. yes, that's right, yes. And isn't, yes. There, isn't there an entrance that goes through somebody's house or something? That's completely correct, yes. <laughs> Stairs start to someone's back garden, that's right. And is that still an, is that still an entrance now? Is that still a... Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I've never been, but yeah, it's, that's absolutely incredible. And then, of course, unexpected cup runs in the late 80s. Of course, the, the big difference being that your team actually won something and we didn't, so... <laughs> Yeah. So what 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 was it all what was about that eight seven eighty eight thing then? What is it we should know about? Well, I mean, I should kind of preface it by saying that I was you know a small child at the time, so I'm kind of doing this with kind of a child's memories as well as kind of very very rose tinted spectacles. But um, yeah, obviously, Little Luton in the first division, uh, been promoted in the early eighties, and people remember David Pleat's uh, yes. space suits and dancing across the. Uh, 
the main road pitch after Reddy Entich scored that goal to keep us up. And then um, John Moore took over 86-87, a very solid uh, coach. We didn't really fancy the limelight of being the manager. And then Ray Harford took over, the late Ray Harford, uh, 87-88. Um, yeah, fantastic season for, for Luton. Uh, a very big cup run in the Littlewoods Cup, so the League Cup mm-hmm. to the final. And the funny thing was, it was kind of more of a big deal for Luton that season than, say, the FA Cup, because we'd been banned from it the previous season. You'd been banned from the um, League Cup or the FA Cup? Yes, from the League Cup. Why? Because of the away fans ban, if I recall correctly. Oh, good Lord. Oh, Do you remember that? Was that, into, was, that an, was that an away fan? Now, I am going from memory here. So that was an away fans ban on all clubs or just in that competition for Luton Town? Or? It's all, yeah, no away fans after 1985, after the Millwall uh, ah, right. Good Lord. And so um, that's how I know about um, the entrance and the Oak Road end because that's the away end now. Ah. But it used to be, because all, all sides used to be uh, home, home stands and that's where I used to sit when... Uh, when I first started going to matches. So, yes, uh, the fantastic 87-88 cup run. Um, and Didn't I you... wasn't allowed to go to the final, so I guess that's why I remember it so very clearly. <laughs> so why, is, is that something you can, can, you can share with us, the why you weren't allowed? Or... I was too small. My dad wouldn't take me. Oh, what? He was worried about taking me to Wembley. Oh, it's just because of the fear. Well, we're going back to my story the other week. When I, if anybody listened to the episode of the week where I went to Wembley in 1989 and a horrible man weed on my flag in the, oh, in the, in the terrace. Lovely, yeah. So you, if it spared you that, Carrie, I must say, uh, your dad had a, had, had a good <laughs> idea. Um, that season, was that, that was the season you beat Oxford 7-4? That's right. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, that's correct. But it was also the season we got to the Simod Cup final and we played Reading the month before. Littlewoods Cup final and got tonked 4-1. Yeah, did Michael Jilk scored for Reading, I think. That was when he was quite young, if I remember rightly. That sounds about right, yeah. So the Simod Cup, is that what is that what then became the Makita Tools Cup and all that stuff? Is that the same one or is that different? It, the ZDS Cup, I think. That's right. what it became, yeah. Yeah, it's the full, it's, I think it's the full members. The full members cup, cup yeah. Can I, just ask, I think, didn't you get to the FA Cup semi-final that FA season? FA Cup semi-final that season as well, yeah. How many games did you play that I don't know, actually. I've never really thought about it. It must have been loads. But, yeah. you know, no one complained about it then, did they, about fixture congestion? Yeah. <laughs> and so it was the, the, the Steen brothers were there, weren't they? Mark Steen, who famously then went to play for Chelsea with John Spencer with the shortest strike partnership <laughs> the football league has ever known. Well, the Premier League, as it was by then, has ever known. It was Martin and Brian Steen, his brother, who actually started more games. Was he the elder of the two, Brian? I'm yeah, assuming Brian he was. Steen is the older brother. Now, Mark Steen, and again, if I recall this correctly, he had walked out of the camp, of the, of the squad camp, earlier that week. And that's why he was sub rather than actually in the starting 11. In the, for the, what, in the League Cup final? Yeah. <laughs> God, what a... <laughs> Did, 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 was he was he known for that? I don't know. I don't know much about Mark Steen. Was he known as a hothead, or was it just one of those things? Yeah, I think he's one of those kind of impulsive little brother types. Because obviously, <laughs> loads of Steen brothers, and uh, yeah, he's he's. And a are they a Luton one. family? The Steens. Um, I don't know. They were kind of North London. All ah, right. Okay. So um, yeah, but obviously because Brian Brian was signed first, and then uh, then Mark followed. So, yeah, Brian Steen, another hugely underrated player. Um, 
never had any pace. And then he came back to Luton uh, probably mid-90s, maybe 92, 93-ish, hmm. and he'd lost whatever pace he ever had. And it was, it was a bit... <laughs> so he had no pace to start with and then came yeah. back with even less pace. That's well, a double you know whammy, what? isn't it? When you're kind of in your late 20s, you can kind of you know, fluff it a little bit. But yeah. Uh, he scored plenty of goals, though, didn't he? For a man with no Fan- pace. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic, fantastic player. But he, you know, he was one of those players who didn't really need to. He had Mick Harford winning the ball for him. And so what he needed to do is just to kind of be there and pick up on those knockdowns. But also he had great vision and creativity as well to create his own stuff. So, what, yeah, fantastic player. Watching some of the games over again, and obviously everyone remembers Mick Harford for his, you know, mm. for being you know, maximum Mick Harford sort of thing. But isn't it, the story about Mick Harford is that he used to come on the pitch and say to the person marking him, get out of my fucking face. Was that his kind of, <laughs> that was his introduction to every game or something. But he yeah. was he was six foot four Harford and actually watching some of the videos back because I knew we were going to talk about this. He's a better footballer than I think people remember him for. He really is. And I mean, Mick Harford, I, I always thought he was a, you know, a, a really, really great player, not, not just for his goals, but... Um, I always had a bit of a, a bit of a liking, I guess, for for the big clumsy kind of centre forwards. But he was never that clumsy. Yeah. Mm. Great touch and great great vision. And yes, he's kind of quite a physical player, and he is a genuine hard man. Mm. Always has been. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's not a good footballer. He's a great footballer. There is a story actually that um, Alex Ferguson on the ninety one to ninety two championship run in the where United caved in and lost to Leeds. Uh, actually tried to sign Mick Harford yeah. in, in uh, March, I think, because United were struggling so badly. They had no, no, no uh, or they were struggling for a presence up front. Um, and, it, you know, obviously it didn't go through, but, you know, Ferguson obviously uh, rated him as a player. I'm amazed yeah. that when they were thinking about having a presence up front that Mick Harford was the first name that sprung to his mind. <laughs> yeah. well, he, does, um, he has a reputation as in some circles, as the hardest footballer from the 1980s, which is a very high bar. That is, yeah. You're graded on quite a curve there, aren't you? Well, yeah. If I, I think I remember hearing a story from uh, Wimbledon that when he signed for them, he was the only player ever to not go through the crazy gang initiation. Because <laughs> he just you? refused. I love that. I love I it. The dead. <laughs> yeah. I, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love the idea. That's great. So you beat Oxford 7-4. That game is on YouTube, by the way, if anybody is out there. Look, at it's just balmy, that game. Just goal after goal just keeps going in. And the plastic, I mean, I'll always love the plastic pitches because of Oldham. And I think there was there's more made of the advantages that it gave than others, but some players were definitely better at playing on it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And if you look at, um, to talk about the League Cup final then, because that was obviously the big event of, of the year, First of all, I must say, there were two absolutely beautiful football kits on show in the sunshine that day. Oh, for yeah. kits to look like that again. Yeah, very straightforward, very plain, exquisite. Clean, shiny V-neck, three yeah. stripes down the arm. What more yeah. do you want from a football? Some of the Luton defending, by the way, that day was absolutely priceless. And by that, I mean you literally would be upset if somebody charged you money for it. It was so <laughs> it was so awful. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, it's an it's an odd game to watch back because I remember watching it on the television and just being incredibly incredibly nervous the entire way through. <laughs> so watching it now in kind of retrospect, it's kind of weird because I know what's going to happen, but I still get those nerves coming back. 
But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing that I've, I don't know if you've ever had that, Mike, and I've had it when you watch sport back again, where you do get swept up in the. You almost you will it to have well, you won't want a different outcome, obviously there with that carry. But I've watched loads of games where I'm willing them for a different outcome, even though I know exactly what the outcome is. It's madness. It's a particularly human football fan thing, I think. Yeah. I think so, yeah. If you're, if you're watching your own team as well, I think it's muscle memory. I think you just kind of tap into <laughs> how, you, how you were reacting on the day. David Rowcastle in that game, Lord rest his soul, obviously. But my word, that was quite some dive he pulled off in. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's a spectacular. about it for the past 30 years. No, it's fine. <laughs> he is on to the... I mean, literally nobody touches him, do they? God bless him. But yeah, it's a, he goes he goes straight down. What I can't understand is, and I, I, nobody here is an Arsenal fan, and I don't know about it enough, but why did Nigel Winterburn take the penalty when Michael Thomas had been taking them all year? Well, that was, I think that was Winterburn's first ever penalty for Arsenal. It's, I mean, I, I don't know if it was just a mass abdic- abdication of responsibility, but it was, yeah, it was incredible. And that, that, that was, I mean, the last 20 minutes of that game, it just, I mean, there's more in that 20 minutes than some teams get in an entire season. Mm. The amount of chances, I think um, Arsenal hit the post and then yes. hit the bar. Alan Smith was through one-on-one and missed. Martin Hayes missed another uh, great chance to miss the penalty, obviously. And was there, um, I think, three goals in the last 20 minutes? But it was just the last 20 minutes alone is just like some highlights reel um, of a great game that would go up first on match of the day. It's unbelievable. To be fair to Nigel Winterburn, take it, I don't know why he took it, but actually it was a decent penalty. But I must say that Andy Dibble pulled off probably one of the best penalty saves I've ever seen. It is. It's a great save. It's an incredible save, yeah. Um, Dibble wasn't the first choice goalkeeper. I mean, you mentioned the poor defending. I think probably that's part of the shakiness and kind of particularly the early stages. Like obviously, Les Seeley was first choice goalkeeper and he wasn't fit. Mm. So Dibble played like maybe his fifth or sixth game of the season or something in at, at Wembley in the League Cup final. <laughs> that's amazing. But yeah, it, it is an incredible save, an absolutely incredible save. So you finished mid... So you, you, you won that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Scored, Brian Steen scored the final goal. Danny Wilson scored a goal. Of course, he went to, on to manage Sheffield Wednesday, among others, didn't he, Danny Wilson? Did, yes. Uh, yeah, a stooping header from one of the shortest players on the pitch. <laughs> he didn't yeah. score many of his head, did he? No. <laughs> What's another thing you notice watching those games back as well is how Brian Moore was commentating on it because ITV had the League Cup, didn't they? Yeah. And it's how composed Brian Moore was the whole time. There's no screaming abdabs, is there, from from commentators no, back didn't. then? Not really, maybe there was, but not from Brian Moore anyway. He just didn't do it at all. No, he's very um, very calm and assured, isn't he, Brian Moore? He never, I, I can't remember him an occasion where he would kind of completely lose a, a goal. Um, one thing just on the air, uh, the equaliser actually that um, Danny Wilson scores mm. in uh, Arsenal circles, that's always blamed on Gus Caesar. Yes. Who um, kind of gives the ball away. And it, it's kind of, the urban myth is that he, he tripped over his own feet, but I think he was actually quipped as he was running to kind of retrieve his own mistake. I mean, to, to me, on, on the kind of replays and things, that looks like a foul. But it looks like a foul to me as well, it must be said. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, but it's basically the mistake that finished uh, Gus Caesar's career, effectively. I and mean, there's a great bit in Beaver Pitch, uh, the, the kind of short chapter that's on this um, particular game, about Gus Caesar and about. Uh, you know, hopes and dreams and aspirations of making it and then having them all crushed in a horrible public humiliation, um, which I, I just I, I reread 
by way of research for this. It's a, <laughs> it's a fantastic bit of, you know, a great book. But, um, yeah, that was poor Gus Susan. Yeah, indeed. So you won that, didn't you? Yes. Obviously. So, yeah, so a 3-2 win. So uh, Steen's, Brian Steen scores in the very, very last minute. It's kind of one of the last, uh, last touches of the game. And uh, yes, Bedfordshire goes wild. <laughs> <laughs> Has it gone wild into the same level since? No, I don't remember kind of having a, a, a parade to that extent or being that kind of excited about... Uh, about a trophy because that's our first kind of major trophy win obviously you know won uh, league championships you know second division mm. third division but that's like a, pro- a proper cup and yeah we won it and, and it yeah. still and it still was a proper cup back then as well wasn't it yeah. it was secondary to the FA Cup but it was still a big deal wasn't it the league cup oh absolutely yeah a, a huge deal yeah is there any kind of lasting regret that you know it didn't take you into Europe because obviously you know it's during the the Heisel ban is that kind of a is, that, is it kind of tinged with regret at all in that way? I mean, obviously... It's yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, when you start to look at kind of the immediate follow- years following what happened in, in 88, you start to look at uh, our relegation, which we'll probably talk about shortly. And then but it's basically a lack of money. It's always been Luton's problem is lack of money. And you can imagine that uh, a, a run in Europe or at least the opportunity to play in Europe might have made a difference. Maybe it's just staving yeah. off the inevitable after a couple of years. But you know, essentially, we missed out on the Premier League because we got relegated the season before it started. Mm. And had we managed to stay in, even for one year, I don't know what might have happened, but I suspect it would have been better. Well, speaking as a fan of a club who was in the Premier League for two years and then nearly went out of business in 2002, I'm not sure it would have made a great deal of difference if our model is anything to go by, but um, mm-hmm. but it's something to think about. So you won that then. You finished mid-table that year, didn't you? Was it solidly mid-table, nice and safe? Yeah. You yeah. had a good run in the FA Cup as well. So when did the relegation come? So that's 91-92. So All right, so that was that year. Right, okay. Literally the, the season before Premier League started. And was it a kind of domino effect tumble from then on for Luton? Or? <sighs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, had a succession of... Um, how best to describe them? <laughs> Strange owners with interesting ideas on how to run football clubs. Um, obviously, lack of money. You, you, we mentioned Kenilworth Road. The club don't own the stadium, um, so that you know there's no kind of money there. Can't be redeveloped because it's in the middle of a residential area. So that's been a problem for you know 50 years. And they've been talking about getting a new ground for my entire lifetime and for a good you know 15, 20 years before that. So that's a problem. And, uh, yeah, once you start uh, not being able to pay your players decent wages, once the money in the Premier League is there, your best players are going to get attracted away. They've always been a selling club. You know, think about players like uh, John Hartson, who mm. for the youth system, sold him. Matthew Upson. You know, these are players that uh, kind of mid-90s, when we're kind of been relegated, selling them off quite, you know, pretty young. Mm to get as much money as we could as quickly as possible because that's what needed to be done at that time. And you, But you had that great, well, that pretty decent cup run in, was it 95? 94, 94, yeah. 94. Yeah. And that was a John Hartson, Scott Oakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that was some good stuff. But yeah, Chelsea in the, uh, in the semi-final. Yeah, um, you hammered Newcastle. Was it a hell of a game against did. Newcastle yeah. that year, if I remember right. 2-0, 2-0, we beat them at home. And then uh, the Scott Oaks hat trick in the in the quarterfinal against West Ham, 
But yeah, you can kind of the one-off kind of cup runs gloss over, <laughs> punctuating the misery like a little bell ringing. That's exactly it. Yeah. So um, what? When, go on, Mike. Sorry, I was just going to ask. When was it that they stopped using the the plastic pitch? Was it when the FA brought in the the what well, the order that you couldn't use them anymore? Yeah, that would have been. I want to say ninety two as well. That was that, a year for Oldham. Yeah. Yeah. Because there were, I mean, there used to be a thing about, um, well, I mean, plastic pitch was a derogatory term, I think, in the media. They're actually called all weather surfaces, I think, <laughs> was, their, um, was their official title. But you would think, you know, that kind of smooth, flat surface, surface would suit, uh, you know, ball playing teams. But Liverpool, in particular, always seemed to kind of struggle on plastic pitches. Um, they often struggled against Luton. I yeah. Um, and you know, for, for anyone listening to this who's under thirty, <laughs> uh, when we say plastic pitch, um, you know, not plastic as in like the three G they have now. It's literally like you know, it's like a hockey pitch, isn't it? Basically covered in yeah. sand. Yeah, every every leisure centre's got one. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and everyone's ripped the leg open on it playing midweek seven aside or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting now because the three G. And if you look at rugby now, most of the top clubs have these hybrid pitches now, which are a combination of. Plastic, I suppose, and grass. In a way, they were, they were probably twenty years too early. Because who else had them? QPR had one, didn't they? We had one. All the yeah, had one. Preston did. Preston yeah. had one. Yeah, QPR had the first one. That was Venables' idea, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was, was all yeah. about getting better footballers, effectively. Yeah. Okay, so that was whatever happened to Scott Oakes. He looked like he was going to be a proper player. He got injured. Um, ah. I think he's still kind of playing uh, non-league level, or he was up to a couple of years ago. I saw him in a in a local kind of charity game thing. Yeah. Was he still um, skinning people and using both feet magnificently like he was back then? Um, not to the same degree. <laughs> I think it, was a, it was a knee injury that did for him, so ah. it hasn't looked quite the same movement. But uh, but uh, yeah, that's the thing with watching old footballers. Though. They've still got something there, haven't they? They still know how to use the hips and the body properly, don't they? That's the thing. They always stand out. But your pace goes, but your kind of class doesn't, does it? And, and a kind of link. You're a United fan, aren't you, Mike? Yes, I am. Yeah. And of course, there's a link between the Luton team of '88 and United in '95, isn't there? Which is Tim Breaker. Tim Breaker, yeah. Because Tim Breaker was in that Luton team, and then Tim Breaker with his magnificent cheating in the West Ham game versus United <laughs> in '95. Well, exactly. I prefer I prefer to remember that Luton team for Red Sea with. To, uh, of course, yes. Yeah, helped turn the whole ship round in uh, in 1990. Oh, well, the less said about Tim Breaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just ask Carrie actually? Um, if you didn't go to the final in '88, did you go to the '89 final? I did. Yes. All oh, right. How was that? <laughs> I, um, I, I think my dad was probably right the previous year. I was too small to really see very much. <laughs> um. But I think I just made such a fuss about it uh, in the pre- in the intervening year that he just kind of gave in. But it's funny what you said, Lee, about uh, about the incident with the flag, uh, <laughs> because I remember we parked and we got out of the car and I had my scarf and stuff and I looked over to the side by the wall and I was like, "What's that man doing?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, don't, 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 just look away." <laughs> and, Obviously, now I realise what was happening, yes. Um, gentleman relieving himself on the wall of the car park. <laughs> yep, yeah, it was ever thus. <laughs> it was ever thus. So there you go. Yeah, go on. The final itself, all I really remember is Mick Harford's goal, so he kind of opened the scoring, and after that it was uh, rapidly downhill. 
Yeah, that was Forrest, wasn't it? I think yeah, it was, that's uh, right. Yeah. That was when, yeah, when Forrest basically dominated every cup yeah. one year or another for about 10 years. Let's talk about uh, Le Tournoi 1997, shall we? Now, the first thing about this is, I'm not going to talk about that free kick. We'll come on to that in a minute. But I suppose, Mike, it's probably worth just giving a background as to what it actually was. For those people who can't remember what it is, I, I got misty-eyed about it. Because, you know, what was it? Okay. Well, what it was essentially is a forerunner of what's now the Confederations Cup. So basically, one year before you host the World Cup, you have this kind of friendly tournament where you where you know the host nation they get to try out uh, the stadiums you know the infrastructure of the cities all this kind of stuff i mean for most modern world cups now all you know loads of the stadiums have been rebuilt or built from scratch mm. so it's just a kind of a chance for the hosts to kind of test their organizational levels i guess and england were actually involved in one of these in 1993 as well uh for a world cup they then didn't qualify for so they went they went to the 1994, uh, oh, sorry, 1993 US Cup, where I think they played Germany, Brazil, and the United States, and just played terribly, uh, basically because they were pissed for the entire time. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a legendary tournament. For, uh, it, it was right at the kind of uh, peak of Graham Taylor's suffering, I think, especially when they lost to the USA in the opening game. Oh, that was uh, the famous Alexi Lalas header, was it? Was that that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, the Lalas. Yeah, header. yeah, yeah. I remember now. But, um, yeah, if you if you read or hear Paul Merson's accounts of uh, that trip, uh, whenever he's asked about it, he just kind of looks off into the middle distance and just kind of reminisces about what uh, what an absolute bino you know, it was for all the players. Um, you know, they, you know, they didn't take it seriously at all, no. and uh, you know, they lost accordingly. But by the time '97 came around, obviously they're being managed by Glenn Hoddle. Um, very different style of management and very much, um, you know, all business by that point as well. The hijinks of uh, that Taylor era and, you know, the Venables, you know, the, the pre-tournament, pre-Euro 96. Uh, yeah, Dentist chair and all that, yeah. Yeah, they were sort of consigned to history. But um, So, yeah, so England were um, in this tournament with Italy, Brazil and France. So, you know, in terms of the, you know, competing teams, quite a high-profile tournament, but, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, you know, not really laced with any meaning, but it did become laced with meaning after England won it. <laughs> the inter- yeah, as it does with our media, yes. Yeah, in the, the mind of England, yeah. The, the interesting thing is as well, is because the World Cup is protected as a free-to-air tournament, isn't it? That's the kind of sacrosanct thing, whereas this wasn't. It was all broadcast on Sky in 97. Was, you know, so the, yeah, there's something I mean, out there. It also helps you can get a few more quid in the coffers by uh, doing it that way. Yeah, that was another way to do it. I mean, it was kind of there was a stench of money about the whole thing, really. I mean, there was a corporate war going on between Nike and Adidas at the time. Well, I don't want to steal it now, I guess. But um, <laughs> Nike, Nike, God, Nike. these things are dull, aren't they? It's like when Pepsi and Coke yeah. had a massive row with each other. You've known anything so pointless in your life, yeah. but yeah. So um, Adidas had three players at the tournament: uh, Beckham for England, Del Piero for Italy, and Zidane for France. Who you know wearing their brand new fangled predator boots <laughs> um, Nike had blocked for uh, the Brazil team basically in 1996 and it, it came with all these kind of guarantees for Nike that they would be able to set up a certain amount of exhibition games a year they'd be entered into as many tournaments as possible Brazil they had to like release 
or, or not Ruiz, but have available you know, a, a set, you know, core of their high-profile players. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So they they played. Um, I think they played twenty-four internationals Brazil in one year, and basically Nike, Nike had their teeth into the Brazil national team so much that after they they lost the final in '98, the Brazilian government ordered an, an investigation into. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just how far Nike were into something. Did, did they force Ronaldo yeah. to play in that final when he had the convulsive fit? All of that kind of stuff. <laughs> what about these homeless people you've cleared off the street? Never mind that. We're having yeah. a government investigation into whether Ronaldo was forced to not play, to play well, that game. Well, right, yeah. But no, it was around the time of that. You remember that advert in the airport where all the Brazilian players were doing, you know... With the music, yes. Yeah, with yes, the music yes. and the key up. Yeah, it was very much at the height, of, uh, the height of that. But actually, Brazil were world champions then, so they didn't have any competitive fixtures they didn't have to qualify mm. it was only, only whenever the Copa America came around really but yeah that kind of underlying the whole thing and all the way up to the 98 World Cup was this you know Nike versus Adidas thing in the background so will there be a Confederations Cup in Russia this summer uh, 2017 well, one, there was, or has uh, there been there was one, one? There's, yeah there was one in the summer just gone um, which had Germany won they beat uh, did they? They, beat, they beat Chile in the final I think yeah, so I mean, it's every. Oh, you're right. Germany won Chile nil. Just looked it up in Russia. There, see, yeah, yeah. completely passed me by that. Just shows how much I watch modern football, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not the highest profile tournament, and until the day comes when England send a team, <laughs> <laughs> and then all the bunting will be out. The bunting cannon will be firing stuff into the air. Yeah, quite ominously as well. Russia, I think, went out in the first round of that, <laughs> so it doesn't exactly bode well. But then we've got to get through the Qatar one yet. So... Oh, God, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they'll fare any better either. So that's what the whole background... I had no idea about the Nike thing. I didn't know that at all. So, yeah, it was, it, was a huge, um, it was a huge thing after the 98 World Cup, particularly because uh, the whole conspiracy about, hmm. you know, they entered a team sheet. That yeah, I remember, I remember all that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the kind of idea is that Nike said he's going to play. I mean, I don't know how far any of that's true. <laughs> I don't think the investigation got to the bottom of it. Yeah. So, yeah. so England won this thing, as you said, which which made people particularly excited. It was it was kind of they won, they lost one nil in the last game, didn't they? To to Brazil, was it? Yeah, they lost to Brazil, but they actually won it in two rounds of games. So they won their first two games, and every other game in the group was a draw. Uh, so by the time they went into the game against Brazil, they'd already won the won the tournament. But then Brazil turned up in the last game and then just rolled them over really really, really easily. And just you know, kind of showed where the sort of true power in world football lay. Like. But then <laughs> afterwards, after England had won it, I mean, you couldn't shut Glenn Hoddle up about it for a long time. I mean, it became. I mean, the big teams know, were there, weren't they? To be fair, and they were putting pretty solid teams out. If you look at the Italy team; it was Albertini, it was Vieri, wasn't it? It was all the kind of decent players yeah, at the time. Yeah. And uh, France had to take France had to take it seriously as well. They were the hosts. Um, I think the main benefit for England was that they were in a World Cup qualifying group with Italy at the same time. And they'd lost uh, the first game in the group, which was before the tournoi at Wembley to Italy. That was so, the 1-0 when Zola scored, was it? The 1-0 was Zola, yeah. yeah. So they, it was kind of a case of lose the battle. And then they won the, the kind of phony war in France, uh, where they beat Italy 2-0. Um, and that kind of... A lot of the players and Hoddle, I think, sort of credit that with giving them the confidence to go and get, a, you know, a very over-celebrated 0-0 draw in Rome, <laughs> I think. But, uh, what I remember about that Zola goal at Wembley was that, I think, wasn't that the game that Hoddle had switched to three centre-backs for the first uh, time, I think, or very early on, 
and Zola just ran straight in between Campbell and whoever he, and Southgate. I think he just picked the line between the two of them and scored. I remember that. I'm going completely from memory here, so I need to, I'm willing to be corrected. But that's that's I remember happening. I think he um I think he'd always played three centre backs. Huddle it was an extension oh, of what uh, what Venables had been doing at Euro '96. But I mean the the big problem with that goal was that I think David Seaman had to pull out of the game maybe the day before or something like that, and they played Ian Walker in goal, um, and he got beaten with a really easy shot at his near post. Um, he also picked Matt Letizier for that game, and it was meant to be a secret. No one was meant to know until an hour before when the teams were put in, and Matt Letizier rang his brother, and then his brother rang Guernsey Radio or something like that, <laughs> and kind of announced that Matt was going to be in the team a couple of days before, and then the secret was out um, everywhere. So, it was, yeah. Yeah, you Not- don't imagine Ian Walker inspires a lot of confidence still behind your back four, does he? No, no, no. They did Andy Dibble, but of course he was Welsh, wasn't he, Carrie? <laughs> he was Welsh. Still is, I imagine. I imagine he still is, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, so the, the tournament, England won it. It was, ironically, it's the last trophy that Alan Shearer ever uh, won. Really? Is that yeah, right? Holding the Latournois yeah. thing above his head was the last trophy he won, I think, in 97. Oh, it would be, actually. Actually, that was probably the, that was the last of Alan Shearer you saw in his absolute pomp because I think six weeks later he broke his leg in his, a his pre-season game. Yeah, was it, yeah. Oh, was it, oh, was it his, did he do I think it was his cruciate, yeah. So um, he was never quite, the, I mean, he's still a brilliant player. Yeah. That, but he was never quite the same force he was. I mean, between 92 and 97, he was just, he was pretty, was one of the best strikers in the world, like, no question. Yeah, so um, he kind of slightly embarrassed, he held this little little trophy thing above his head and that was it. That was the, the last last time he ever won. Anything. It was also a kind of template in a way for, even though we won it, it was a template for England's kind of performances over the next decade, a kind of slightly bright start with a bit of pomp and ceremony, then come up against somebody actually proper and get sparkled, basically, which is, which is kind of what kept happening, wasn't it? Because then in 98, we went out in the second round, didn't we? And, and you know, we had the Keegan debacle and then Ericsson came along and just got us to the quarterfinals and we'd all be frustrated yeah. and angry all the time. Yeah, I think England are great, you know, when they, you know, they need to qualify and they need to get through a group. And if it goes down to a decider, they can generally get through it. But then when push comes to shove and you have to play a decent team, that's generally when uh, when the run kind of rather abruptly ends. Paul Scholes had a very good tournament, if I remember rightly. It was kind of one of his coming-of-age type tournaments, in my yeah. memory. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so he, he played, um, he made his full England debut against Italy. Hmm. Um, and was absolutely revelatory. I think he scored one. He set up Ian Wright's goal. His pass well. for Ian Wright's goal, if you haven't seen it on YouTube, anybody listening, have a look at it. Because it the way he sets himself up for the pass, he just kind of gently chips the ball up over somebody and then hits it first time straight into Ian Wright's path, who then scores. And then he scores an absolute a pretty semi-screamer of his own as well. It's really, really yeah. good play. Yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant ball. And also, I mean, the other thing about that is as well that Paul Gascoigne was on the bench for that game. And it was kind of the first time you could really see like an England midfield or a future of an England midfield without Gascoigne in it. I mean, it took another year for you know, Gascoigne to get dropped just before the 98 World Cup. But his, you know, his, his career and his life, in, in fact, were kind of un, unraveling pretty quickly after Euro 96. But it was the, the kind of emergence of Stoles was like, the, that was the first time you could see, well, you know, after years and years of like hoping Gaza would be fit and hoping he would come back from injury in time, uh, you could see a kind of future, uh, you know, with England mm. without Gascoigne in it, I think. Yeah, because I think Scholes did take Gascoigne's place 
in the 98 World Cup squad eventually, didn't he? Yeah, effectively. I mean, a lot of people seem to forget that about Scholes because he, he was shunted out to the left um, by Ericsson. But before that, in the centre of midfield for Hoddle and then for Keegan and then early on under Ericsson, he was absolutely outstanding in midfield, Scholes. Mm. I think by the time he got to 35 caps, he had uh, 13 goals for England. And Ian Wright didn't uh, go to France 98, did he? No, he didn't, no. Um, I remember him after the Italy draw because he played in the Italy draw that got us there. I remember him in the post-match interview sort of saying, please take me to the World Cup, Galadol, please. You know, with, with the kind of dignity Ian Wright normally summons up at these yeah. at these yeah. moments. Well, there's actually, there's, at the tournament, there was a huge fallout between Glenn Hoddle and Liverpool because Liverpool pulled out Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler. Oh, um, right. I, I think, yeah, and Hoddle kind of gave them both barrels in the media and said, well, if you pull them out, then, you know, the there's no guarantee they're going to go to the World Cup. In fact, they've just damaged their chances. Uh, and Fowler didn't end up going. I mean, he was injured anyway, but McManaman did go, but it was just, I think he only got 15 minutes. He was consigned to the bench, and that's only two years on from being one of the best players at Euro 96. So there's also a little window into Hoddle's uh, rather obtuse man management <coughs> tactics and, you know, the way, the way he dealt with things through the media, which was often quite clumsy. I remember when Hoddle finally lost his job before Keegan and a lot of people were saying then he, he, he may come back and get the England job again. I remember that being quite a thing at the time, sort of saying, because he was still very young, wasn't he? And it was all, he'll learn lessons, he'll go and get a good job somewhere, he'll develop his experience and he'll come back. It's not a very England thing, is it, to have people coming back? But I don't think it's ever going to happen now because he just does no. a line on absolutely inexplicably awful punditry on ITV now. <laughs> I think he, I think he got the England job at thirty-seven, which seems mm. incredible. And he'd just but, come from being player manager at Chelsea and Swindon, hadn't he? Directly yeah, before, yeah, player manager at Swindon, and he got them up in the playoffs. And then I think even, <coughs> even when United um, played Chelsea in the ninety-four Cup final, Hoddle, I think he came off the bench in that. He did. He got stripped when he when, he went, when, when I think when, when that second Cantona penalty went, he was like, right, I'm taking my tracksuit oh, off. Sit. He did the Superman thing, didn't he? Where he just kind of yeah, he's like, right, I'm coming on. Yeah. yeah, I'm coming on to spray passes all over the place and make no difference. But yeah, yeah, very, you know, very young to get, you know, a job that big that early. I, mean, I can't imagine. Oh, that was, I guess Southgate got it quite quickly. But he, was, he was kind of embedded in the FA, isn't he? But yeah, Hoddle was a bit. When you look back at it, it was a bit more of an out there. Well, it was still a job that people wanted back then. Nobody wants it now, I don't think. Well, people used to canvas for it. You can't give the thing away now. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? Really. So let's talk about that free kick then, because you can't talk about Latorre without that free kick. Roberto mm. Carlos versus Italy. I still think it was basically just completely jammy. He just leathered it one and it somehow did something odd. I've never seen a ball do that before or since, really. Well, I don't know if this is true, but there's a theory someone told me that if you if you place the ball down with the, you know where the adapter valve goes into the yeah, ball? Yeah, I've heard this one you, as well. Yeah, yeah, if you have that facing, if you boot through the back of that, it creates some kind of, you know, variation <laughs> while is. the ball's in the air. I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of torn. I think, I think he literally just wanted to hit it as hard as he possibly could shanked it it started going out towards the North Sea <laughs> and just kind of lashed back in I mean it's from, from there's a great view of it and you can get it on YouTube from uh, behind one of the goals yeah sort of looking right down it and yeah, it is it's an absolutely incredible Fabian Bartas's face is the kind of best bit about it as he just kind of yeah. watch, looks as if it's going wide and suddenly realises it's curving back in and there's obviously nothing he can do about it but also can't believe that it's just 
it's just happened. It's one of those, I think. It's like with a lot of stuff with this. It's like, could you do it again? And although he did hit good free kicks, Carlos, he'll never hit one like that again. I think it was, I don't know, it was just a freak, I think. Yeah, I think he tried to do that outside of the boot one quite a few times. And he, I, he never really caught one like that. I've, I've certainly never seen a similar free kick from him. But that was, that's, that was him then for the rest of his career. The great free kick expert. He yeah. scored about five, five free kicks, <laughs> I think, in his whole career. But still managed to amass a load of caps for Brazil because he was actually a decent fullback when everyone, everyone became the, the free kick thing. Oh, yeah, he was a brilliant player. I mean, for all, the, for all the kind of nightclub hype about that Brazil team, they did have some pretty exceptional players. France had a... France, that was the kind of template for their 98 team. And Christophe... I always find it hilarious, the, the stories about Christophe Dugarry that he was based only ever there because he was Zidane's mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think Dugarry's a pretty decent player. But the, the French forwards, actually, in that Retournoir squad, it was only Dugarry out of the five that actually made it to the World Cup. And this is, this is only a year before the World Cup, so they hadn't at this point found Thierry Henry or Trezeguet or Anelka. Um, they had real trouble kind of finding... They had Stefan Givarch. That's how desperate that, it was. Yeah, well, yeah, he played the final, didn't he? Yeah. A, a bit of a nightmare, and then a pretty terrible time at Newcastle off the back of that. But do you, do you, have you ever heard the quote from Patrice Evra about Christophe Dugarry? No, go on. Uh, he, he said... I think Dugarry is the only person in the world who knows the number of pubic hairs that Zidane has on his family jewels. <laughs> That's yeah. nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So obviously, not a, not friends then. Obviously not, but it, it, I don't know whether that's just because Evra. But given the fact that you know, as we record this last week, Patrice Evra has been banned for karate kicking one of his own fans in the head. Um, yeah, he's not had a great week. He's not had a great week, but maybe <laughs> that it, is it just that Evra's just a bit like that, or does it give uh, something more away about the wider squad's feeling or French professional football's feeling about Dugarry's international career? I don't know. Yeah, I think Evra, he also, at one, one of the World Cups, he had a big go at Lillian Taram as well. Um, I can't remember what it was over now, but uh, yeah, it's something, it something to do with it. Was that was it the 2010 World Cup? where France went out in the first round and they're all fighting with each other and they all hated Dominic. Um And yeah, and every, you know, he's not one to keep his opinions to himself. Let's, uh, let's put it that way. No, Lillian Tiram's had quite an um, interesting retirement, Lillian Tiram. He, in 2011, he, cu- he curated an exhibition at the Musée de Quai Branly entitled Human Zoos, The Invention of the Savage. Wow. That's- <laughs> Whereas we've just got Robbie Savage. Yeah, yeah, that's not a sideline you often hear from a footballer. No, and he and he, he takes parts in demonstrations in favour of same-sex marriage and started a foundation which tackles racism. Fair play, Lillian Tiram. Not only you're a fantastic yeah, defender, yeah. and uh, but yeah, an unorthodox footballer's retirement. Hmm. Well, he sounds like he can overcome any criticism Patrice Ebra throws. At him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Le Tournoir. 1997, a bit of a reminder of what that was all about and what it meant for England. That will probably do us for this week. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. Thank you, Mike, for coming along and offering your opinions. And thank you, Carrie. Thank you. For priceless, yeah, priceless loot and town information. And um, mm-hmm. thanks, everybody, for listening. And hopefully we'll speak to you all next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.